Good morning, and you can make your way to Exodus chapter 34. We will start reviewing that story. I sort of have a challenge this morning, and I don't want to put Caleb on the spot, but um, I actually thought, you know, that the reading would be done by recitation. So I have the unique uh, challenge this morning of, of uh, the fact that whatever percent I'm sure the vast majority of my audience today has actually memorized the text that we're reviewing from 2 Corinthians 3. So I don't have to spend much time reviewing the details of the text since all of you have memorized that, or most of you have. Um, But I do want to link with what Paul links to from Exodus chapter 34 really quickly, and then we'll move into 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The other challenge I have is being an old guy, so I have to do a little bit of test of... uh, sort of the culture here so I know whether I can connect, because Paul is making an assumption that probably is valid for me, but I'm not sure if it's valid for you. So um, uh, I want to present something to you uh, this morning that is is a remarkable thing. Um, This uh, little cartridge um, actually allows you to play music that you want to hear in your automobile. Okay? Now, I know this, <coughs> this is a new concept to you, and, and you're struggling to comprehend it, um, but this is called an eight-track tape, okay? And, and um, you actually, if you have the right player in your vehicle, you can choose to, like Dr. McLeod might choose Merle Haggard here, um, uh, and, and play Merle Haggard, your choice of Merle Haggard songs in your vehicle while you're riding along. You don't just have to listen to the radio. Because, um, see, they invented these, these vinyl records um, about this large, and, and it was really difficult to have that kind of instrument play in, or, you know, the, the vinyl in your vehicle. But now we have this uh, that you can. Uh. So, I- anyway, um, I don't see many of you too impressed. I don't know that I'm going to sell many of them. I don't know what happened. Uh, maybe my sales job, my ability... Um, but for some reason, you already think you have something better than this. Um, and, you know, maybe you do. Uh, there's some instructions on here for best results and highest fidelity. Did I say it was an 8-track stereo tape? I didn't say it was stereo. Maybe, did you hear that? It's stereo, okay? It, 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 it's, it's not mono AM radio, it's stereo. It says for best results and highest fidelity, do not open plastic cartridge or touch tape. Yeah, that was an issue back in the 1970s. When not in use, discard, uh, disengage cartridge from machine about one inch. If you didn't do that, it was, it was all over. You'd have tape everywhere. Clean player unit regularly, according to the manufacturer's instructions. I'm, I mean, that, that's not that difficult, is it? Protect cartridge from intense sunlight and extreme heat or cold. Use a specially designed slipcase right here um, in order to store and protect the tape cartridge. Okay. So I do have an issue, and Paul is going to have an issue with you, because apparently you don't think old things are better than new things. Okay, I'm an old guy, so I like old stuff. And I know some of you are like, this is cool, I can't... Yeah, y'all like do vinyl? I'm like, really? You buy these plastic things and hear the snap and the pop and the fizz and the fuzz and everything else? Okay, Jacob's got a whole collection apparently, all right? If you want to go hear all of that. But Paul is going to say that the tendency is to think that the old is better than the new. Um, but you 
you think the new is better. So I, I don't know. We'll work and see, but just realize that's, that's sort of your concept. Uh, and you'll have to work carefully with the text because Paul is going to make the assumption that we like the old better than the new and that the old is more glorious, okay, more beneficial, more important and more significant than the new, the whatever means you use to play music in your vehicle that you wouldn't want an eight-track tape. So. so Paul pulls from Exodus chapter 34. You're there now. And Paul tells or works from this story, a remarkable story of um, Moses receiving the law really for the second time, coming from, down from the mountain. And again, there's this description that, that's unique in these verses where Moses, after spending 40 days and 40 nights on the mountains, come down and his face literally glows. Okay? The people are afraid, and he tells them as they see his, his face that he, he draws them to himself. He tells them the message of the Lord. And then afterwards, he, he puts a veil on his face. Um, that's verses 30, 29 through 33. Um, so after he finished verse 33, speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. So the initial coming down... Face shining, people are afraid. He speaks to them. He tells them what God has said to him on the mountain, and then he puts a veil on his face. So, so it's sort of important for you to understand sort of the pattern. And then in verse 34 through 35, Moses is describing the routine operation after sort of the first initiation. He says, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, so now he's going into the tent of meeting, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, so apparently he was unveiled in all likelihood, when he spoke the words that Yahweh had given to him, to the people, uh, and the people would see, verse 35, would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining. And then we just get, again, a statement of the narrative of what happened. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So I'm just reminding you of the background that Paul is going to assume we know as he pulls from it in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. So turn in your Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, again holding that story uh, in your mind as we look at Paul's first in verses 7 through 11 of 2 Corinthians 3. Paul is contrasting the glory of the old covenant and proving giving evidence that the new covenant glory is far superior. Okay, And again, he's reflecting on this story that gives some indication of the glory of the old covenant, of the law. Okay, So in verse 7 he says, Now if the ministry of death, and Paul's going to use three conditional statements, which he is assuming are true for the sake of argument, and, and they are true, um, in order to emphasize the glory of, of the old covenant, and then contrast that with the far exceeding glory of the new covenant. So he says, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, and again, he's pulling back, and I need to go back to verse 7, so look in your Bibles, back, I mean, verse 6, okay, he's pulling back from what uh, Dr. Stevenson covered previously. Uh, in verse 6, he says, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant? So he's introducing this new covenant previously. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So he's linking back to the letter there and contrasting the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So I want you to see he's continuing this contrast that he's initiated in verse 6. Now calling the Old Covenant the ministry of death, which, again, 
we, we just struggle because we don't believe that the old covenant is that significant, which is probably good because we bought into the new covenant. But for them, their understanding and appreciation and what the false teachers would have said is, is wow, this old covenant is, is pretty glorious. In fact, it is remarkably glorious and all of its benefits and wonders. So he's going to say, if the ministry of death, <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, is it really a ministry of death? Does it produce death? They would have said, that, 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 I don't think so. But he's going to say that this ministry, this old covenant ministry, came carved on letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. So he's saying, this old covenant was glorious. Okay, And again, if I walked in this morning to speak and my face glowed, it would have an impact on you. Okay, He's like, what, he's, what has he been doing? Now, I may have been out just out in the sun for this past weekend, and that's what happens to my face. It's a sort of glow when I get too much sun. But if it literally had shining brightness to it, it would you'd be like, wow, that, that's, something has happened to Mr. Cozen. Okay? And it would have been attractive to you maybe, scary to you maybe. And so that's what Paul is saying. Hey, the old covenant did have glory. All right, Moses' face shone. That's pretty incredible, okay? I've spent a little bit of time this weekend with the text trying to seek the Lord's face, and apparently it didn't result in any glow, okay? Um, Y'all aren't impressed with that. But Moses, speaking with Yahweh, receiving the law, his face glowed. And so Paul is saying, hey, that, that's, that is glorious. And if that ministry that produced death was glorious, and it was brought to an end, okay, and then don't go to the veil yet. We're going to deal with that later, okay? But if that was brought to an end, either the fading glory of Moses' face is probably what he's talking about. It didn't last. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, so now he's contrasting again the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, have even more glory? And, of course, the rhetorical question is, yes, but he's going to keep piling on to give evidence. We have a ministry of death contrasted with the ministry of spirit. Go back to verse 7, and the spirit produces what? Life. But the letter kills. He's going to add another contrast in verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, was there? Now, wait a minute. If you were with a part of the nation of Israel in Moses' day, what did you see? You saw a mountain on fire, earthquake, lightning. You saw Moses' face glow. You saw clouds, fire. I mean, you're like, this is pretty impressive. Okay? And again, Paul is setting up his ministry, which is a ministry of the Spirit, and his proclamation of that ministry. And people were saying, Paul, you're not that impressive. Okay? Sort of like you're saying this morning, Mr. Cozen, you're not that impressive. If my face glowed, then okay, you know, we might listen to you. We might be impressed. You're pretty glorious, but Paul, there's not much glorious in your ministry, but Paul is emphasizing the heart of the ministry. It's the ministry of the Spirit which produces life versus the ministry of the Old Covenant which produced death. The Old Covenant produced condemnation, judgment. Again, I can't this morning cover all of what the law is and how it functions for us as believers. Okay, Through our study of 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5, we'll get pieces and parts, and we'll get a little bit of that today. You'll get it in your survey courses. You'll get it in your theology courses. Please work that out. But Paul has called in other places, which would add to our understanding of, of the law and how we relate to it, um, Romans, 
Galatians, um, other places in First and Second Corinthians. So read all these passages. But Paul has said that the law is good. It's holy. It revealed the character and nature of God. The problem is not with the law, which had a certain aspect of glory because it revealed the holiness of God. The problem is the failure of the people to keep the law. And the failure of the people to keep the law meant that the law brought death, brought judgment, it brought condemnation. That was the old covenant, not that it in and of itself was, because it was the problem of the people and their rebellion against it. And it judged and it condemned because they could not keep it. Versus the new covenant ministry that Paul is presenting, which is of the Spirit, which produces life, it does not condemn. What does it give? The text says righteousness. It's the ministry of righteousness. We are declared righteous in Jesus Christ as a result of becoming part of the new covenant. Is that glorious? Apparently not. Y'all don't think so. I know. Is that glorious that you would be declared righteous? Some of you might think you don't need that because you're already righteous. You're already really, really good. Okay, talk to your, you know, the people around you. They might help you to see. I know. <laughs> I need to be reminded often. I need the new covenant which declares me righteous. It's a ministry of righteousness, not only in its justification, but Paul is going to argue that it also produces righteousness in us. It allows us, that's the transformational change that comes through the new covenant, is because of its work through the Spirit is actually able to produce righteousness in us. Okay, And again, you can see the contrast. He makes a summary statement in verse 10. It says, indeed, in this case, what once had glory, that is the old covenant, shining face, you know, voice of God. I mean, there's a lot that you've read through in the Old Testament survey in Old Testament about the, the glory of this um, exodus, this relationship that God had with Israel. Um, indeed, in this case, what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Okay, So it's like the difference well, between this and whatever you have to play your music where you don't even have to have it connected in. I mean, this seemed glorious in the 1960s and 70s and then cassette tapes came and then CDs, CDs came. We're like, oh! incredible CDs, and you're know, like, what's a CD? Why would you even buy a CD? Okay, So the new glory, Paul is arguing, is so great that there's, there's really no glory here. Okay, When you had it, you thought it was the best thing ever. No, you never had 8-track tapes. So when you had an old phone, okay, and I know you're thinking the ATT commercial, we've got to cover it up. This is awful. This is evil to have such a thing. I was trying to find my flip phone, but no, those are coming back in style, so cool. Okay? But you thought when you first got your first phone, it was the best thing ever, right? And then the new phone came, the iPhone what, 22 or whatever you have. You know, now you're like, you're like the old phone has no glory at all. Why would I even pick it up or use it? And Paul is saying the incredible aspects of the new covenant Okay, is so glorious. Why? Not because of necessarily the outward show, a shining face, but because it allows us to be righteous and declares us righteous. It doesn't condemn us. It brings life, brings the means of transformation rather than the means of death. And that is so much more glorious than anything the, other, the old covenant could bring. The last uh, conditional statement is linked to the temporariness. In verse 11, for if what was brought to an end came with glory, again, Paul has argued that the old covenant has been done away with because of the new covenant, much more will what is permanent have glory. So this is just the comparison between what endures. This did not endure. 
By the way, anything you have, all the stuff will not endure. But Paul is arguing that the new covenant is permanent. Through the Spirit, through the work of Christ, through Christ's coming, that is the means of it never being taken away. Would you like a phone that never had to be replaced, never had to be upgraded, never had to change? like, oh, and by the way, it would keep getting better and better automatically on its own. They're going to come up with that. Or maybe they won't because they want you to buy new phones. All right? So Paul is saying this is the final, this is the end, this is the complete. The old covenant has been done away. So he's made clear the contrast between the glory, okay, of the new covenant, which is far superior where the old covenant has no glory. Now, we probably need to define glory really quick, and I don't want to steal all of Mr. Bonansky's thunder for next week and the continuation of a work on glory through these passages, but let me just simply define it as very basically the word means something is important or weighty or significant, okay? Um, to have glory is to have importance or significance, all right? So um, to glorify something is to put something in excellent display, to, to proclaim it as important or significant, okay? Now, when we glorify God, we don't add to his glory. He is glorious. He doesn't need us to add to him. So when we glorify him, we are simply saying, you are important and significant and weighty and heavy because you are infinite. You are all of that. Okay, so we don't add to when we glorify God. We are acknowledging something that is true. All right, Green Bay Packers, you could glorify them. They actually sort of kind of won you know, yesterday. So, and by the way, you're cheering them on doesn't actually have any impact on the team. I, I know you think it does. You know, like, you know, I'm going I'm to glorify the Packers. I'm going to talk about them. I'm going to be excited about them. I'm going to watch them. But, you know, and, unless you're actually calling Aaron Rodgers, he doesn't care. He, it, you, his play is unaffected by whether you cheer or not or whether you wear your jersey or not. Okay? Sort of a connection there. We glorify God because he is deserving of glory. We put him in excellent display. And by the way, we glorify something in our lives always, constantly. Okay? We're talking about something. We're making something significant or important. And Paul is saying, choose to glorify God, who is ultimate, and choose to allow the glory of the new covenant to transform you. By the way, what you glorify transforms you. Okay? That's a little scary when you think about the Green Bay Pack. But work that out. Work that out. Okay? But when we glorify God, God is in the transforming business as we seek to elevate him. So Paul is saying this is so much more glorious. Okay? It's a shining. That's part of the definition of glory, but it's so much more than that. It's linked to God's holiness. Again, we're going to keep working it out. I gave you a very simple definition. But Paul is saying the new covenant is so much glorious, more glorious than the old. In the second part of the section, in verses 12 through 15, Paul is now proclaiming the, um, the proclamation of the new, new covenant ministry. Okay? And he's saying we are very bold since we have such a hope. What is the hope? The hope is not only the glory we have through the covenant now, but the blessing of the new covenant is that it actually extends into eternity. We have something to look forward to, a certain hope of being ultimately glorified okay, when we are removed from this place of sin and of death, and of condemnation, and all sin is removed. So that's the hope that the new covenant provides, and Paul is saying we are bold. He's back to talking about his ministry. 
We've sort of gotten bogged down in the details, but the heart of what Paul is saying is, I am proclaiming the new covenant, I am living in light of the new covenant, and you are, in a sense, as well. So he is very bold to proclaim, and then he contrasts himself with Moses. Notice in verse 13, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Some translations have what was was fading away. Um, Again, I've only got a few minutes, so I can't uh, sort of expound this whole text, but the text seems to indicate that the veil that Moses put on his face was to keep them from seeing the glory fade. I actually don't think that's the proper interpretation. I humbly am taking a different interpretation. This is a challenging passage. Obviously, in two minutes, I can't review all the reasoning for that. But Paul seems to be directly contrasting his ministry of openness okay, and boldness and proclamation with Moses covering his face to hide the glory. And again, I can't go into all the reasons why he would do that, but it was really related to the next verse. Look at the verse um, in verse 14. But their minds were hardened. So rather than sort of go into the details of why, Moses was not covering up to, to keep them from seeing it fading. That wasn't as important. That would have almost been deceptive for Moses. Moses was responding to the hardness of their hearts. And so in order to deal with their rebellion, their failure, their hard, uh, hardened minds and hearts, he put a veil so they could not see the glory. Okay? And again, Exodus 34, as we read it, doesn't give us the reason. Paul is expounding a little bit the reason, but the key point is Moses was a proclaimer of the old covenant in a powerful, wonderful way. In fact, Mr. Bernanski next week might work out that Moses actually had an incredible relationship with Yahweh. He did connect with Yahweh. His face shone as a result of being in the presence of God. And Moses sought to try and communicate who God was and his character and his goodness, even his mercy. In fact, the shining face passage follows the golden calf, failure, sin, and idolatry. And God had chosen to be merciful and not destroy all of them. And this is what Moses experienced. So Moses is a wonderful example of someone who connected with God. But the hardness of their minds and their hearts being veiled, as Paul will say, caused Moses to put a veil on his face to hide the glory. Um, and, and, And that's the contrast. Paul is saying, we have been bold. We haven't put a veil on. And you actually, speaking of the Corinthians, he says, you have received the new covenant. You have believed. They are called saints. Sometimes we're hard on the Corinthians. But Paul is actually affirming, you have received the greater glory. You have received the new covenant uh, ministry of life. You have received the, uh, the righteousness that comes with the new covenant. He's trying to encourage them. And so Paul is saying, I was bold. I wasn't like Moses. I didn't hide. But... Their minds were hardened, and then he brings it up to the current day. The Israelites were rebellious, and Paul is saying to this day, in verse 14, their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. And I think Paul is making a general reference that the veil covers and hides. Okay? So as they read the Old Covenant, generally Jews, but it would be others as well, God-fearers, Gentiles, um, they... That veil of not being able to see the glory of God was, remains unlifted because, the end of verse 14, only through Christ is it taken away. The only way that we can read the old covenant 
and receive the glory of the new covenant is to see Christ in it. And we have the wonderful opportunity even today. And this is what Paul, I think, is challenging the Corinthians. He's saying, read the, the text. Because again, the New Testament is not done. How did Paul proclaim the message of the gospel? He used what? He used the Old Testament. Okay? His proof of the gospel being true was what? According to the scriptures. So it wasn't the scriptures that needed to be thrown out. It was their understanding and appreciation of finding Christ in the scriptures. I know many of you are reading the Old Testament. You're in what? Leviticus? Okay. Tough reading. <laughs> Difficult reading. The problem is not with the book. <laughs> the problem is not with the teachers. Dr. Gear. We've had Mr. Kunjiman. We've had Dr. Routley. All of them do Old Testament survey. Okay. It's whether our hearts are open as we read that passage to those passages to see Christ. And then they become glorious in a new way as we see Christ revealed through those old covenant passages. These guys were reading the same text. It's not the words on the page. It's the unveiling of the mind and the heart to be able to understand and see Christ revealed and turn to the Lord and be able to appreciate the glory. Paul re repeats this important aspect of the re response to the text in verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, and again, there could be a reference here where Paul is saying, you know, Moses, when he went in, he turned to the Lord, and did he have the veil on when he interacted with Yahweh? No, he didn't. He experienced the presence of God. He experienced God's grace and through faith, he was in a proper relationship with God. So when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And, and Paul is saying, you have had the veil removed. Why would you go back to something that is not glorious? Why would you go back to something that produces death? Why would you go back to something that condemns? Then finally, in verse 17, Paul makes the clear link between Yahweh in the Old Testament, and the Spirit's work in the New Testament. Because Paul is not saying, I'm not presenting you a new God. I'm not presenting you a new way of salvation. It's still by grace through faith, but we now, after Christ's coming, can look back to Christ. Moses would have looked forward to the promises of God being fulfilled in the one that would come. And so Paul is going to link and say, wait a minute, I'm not presenting a new God. The Lord, which is probably referencing Yahweh, the one in the Old Testament, Yahweh, that met with Moses is the Spirit. And he's going to go on to say, wait a minute, this same Spirit that caused, the same Lord and Spirit that caused Moses' face to glow is available to us? Yes, in a new, incredible, different, more glorious way that we have. And again, you're working out in survey of doctrine. Paul is not saying there's no difference between Yahweh and the Spirit because what is his next phrase? The Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, distinguishing between the Spirit and the Lord, there is freedom. Paul is saying that when the Spirit of the New Covenant works in our hearts, we are free to, and I think in the local context here, the freedom is boldness to proclaim the message of the gospel. Paul can be bold rather than like Moses. Their hearts were hardened, and Paul is saying, your hearts, says the Corinthians, have not been hardened. You've responded to what the new covenant message is. But he's warning them, don't go back. Don't go back 
to the other ministry, the old covenant. All right, I've almost used my time, which is what I was trying to do, because application of this text is really hard. But I'm going to take three more minutes and try and do it. And the reason it's hard is none of you are like, hey, I can't wait to get back to doing what the old covenant says. I can't wait to eliminate the, the, the bacon, you know. And all those animal sacrifices and twisting the head off of little doves, that sounds really, really cool. You know, it's like, I want to go back to the old. So it's really a challenge to apply this, and, and, and I'm the same way. Um, so I'm, I'm going to introduce it, and I'm going to let the rest of our time as we work through 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 um, sort of provide more applications. But we've gotta, I've got to recognize that I have a tendency to want something else besides the new covenant to tr- transform me. If I didn't, then I would be transformed really, really well. And there's still areas in my life that have not been transformed. So if we went with the new covenant as a means of transformation, that would be happening. But the reality in my heart is there's still a long way to go, which means I'm choosing something else that I think is more glorious than the new covenant as a means of transformation. I just got to give you a few for me. I like a method. I like a method of transformation where I check a box. You might not be into that. Might be good or bad, but I'm like a good Pharisee. Where give me a list of things to do, and then I have evidence that I have been transformed. And I like it even better. In fact, let's do this right now. Look around and see who is most transformed. Can you identify them? Yeah, they're the rule keepers, right? You're like, oh, yeah, those are really, really transformed people. Which, by the way, doing the rules doesn't mean you're legalistic and that you're under the old covenant and you've chosen something less. So be really, really careful. Okay? But we measure with each other. And I want to find somebody who's less transformed than me because then I'm able to check the box and say, yep, I've been transformed. Makes me feel really, really good. Okay? But that is what the old covenant produces, which is ultimately death and condemnation. It doesn't really transform. It's not permanent. The heart change is there when the new covenant's working. And by the way, that does produce external results. We're going to talk about that. We're going to work through that. Okay? So just having external, doing the rules, doing certain things, spiritual disciplines, doesn't mean you're under the old covenant. Okay? doesn't guarantee that you have embraced the new covenant. But be really, really careful. But there is, there is a method, okay? uh, a measurement, a comparison with others. Sometimes it's about making the right decision. We're like, hey, I picked the right school, therefore I'm guaranteed to be transformed. I came to Emmaus Bible College. Some of you actually right now are like, yeah, it's not working out. You think if I had to choose the right spouse that God intended for me, if I take the right classes, if I, you know, and you base it on a decision, that's not the new covenant working. Okay? Some of you are like looking for or have experienced experiences. You're like, if I have the right experience, then that is transformation. That is change. Again, Moses, you know, the people saw and experienced all kinds of incredible, glorious things. But it didn't mean that they were really transformed. The new covenant provides that transformation. And wonderfully, God does work through experiences. But the experiences themselves do not guarantee that we're being transformed um, by the new covenant. All right, I've given you a few. You can come up with 13 other ones of how you tend to be, seek to be transformed. And, And those things are glorious, but they don't have 
an enduring glory. They're not a glory that comes through the Spirit. They're not an internal glory that then shines forth in various ways that maybe we don't like to measure. But I actually don't think that's the primary application because I've given you negative applications. So let me leave you with a positive application. I think Paul really wanted people to be awed by the glory of the Spirit working through the new covenant. And again, the contrast helps us with that, but we struggle with it, okay? Um, And he's saying, do you see what you have in Christ? Do you see the revelation of everything that we have in relationship with God by grace through faith? And, and, And why would we choose any other method of transformation rather than running to embrace all that God offers in the new covenant. And again, that's fuzzy. We like checklists, but that's, again, that's not the basis of transformation. So let me encourage you. Be awed by the glory that God has given us in the new covenant. Be overwhelmed by it. If you aren't, it's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I got saved, and I'm forgiven, and I'm given to heaven. And No, (laughs) you've missed the glory. You've missed the incredible glory that is wrapped up in the new covenant. Um, and, and I've got to work hard because I've, I've been part of the new covenant for longer than you have. But I need to daily work hard and say, this, this is the most incredible, glorious thing, that even if my face never shines, I have received glory that is so transformational. And why would I choose anything else to change or transform me than what God offers in the Spirit? We aren't getting all the way there. Again, I was forced to stop at verse 17. Come back next Monday, Mr. Benancy, you'll work out verse 18, the theme verse of being transformed. Hopefully I've been able to set the table for you in light of what Paul's been doing to what he wants to do uh, so that we might be convinced to embrace all that we have through the new covenant. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for uh, the wonder of your work in history. You met with Moses, you met with the people of Israel, and your glory was displayed, your holiness was graphically illustrated and even written down, the laws that revealed how holy a God you are. Thank you that in the new covenant, through the Spirit, we have life linked to what Christ has done for us. Thank you that we still obey Because your commandments actually are linked to our love for you. But our obedience is linked to the work of your Holy Spirit transforming us and changing us. And that obedience is so much more glorious than anything that could shine from our faces. May we encourage each other in the new covenant work that you are completing through your Holy Spirit. Uh, May we challenge each other to not chase anything else, no other glory. No other means or method of transformation, but return uh, over and over again uh, to what you have given us in Christ.